This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 1, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back. This is the first episode of the third season of the Islamic History Podcast, and we will be discussing the Umayyad dynasty. Inshallah, our story begins in roughly the year 41 AH, that is 41 years after the Hijrah of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that is roughly around uh, 661 of the Common Era. Our story overall, not today's episode, our overall story should in roughly about 110, 112 AH as my intention was to do the uh, first 100 years after the Prophet's death. So I don't know if we will finish all of that within season three, but we are going to finish it inshallah one way or the other however today's episode is probably only going to cover the first three years of muawiyah's caliphate we will not be covering everything within the umayyad dynasty because we're just going to run out of time before we get to 100 years but inshallah i hope you will still find it interesting and entertaining and and engaging that's what i'm looking for as well as of course educational finally just want to let you know that the islamic history podcast is listener supported if you are enjoying this if you're getting some benefit please consider becoming a sponsor you can go to patreon.com slash islamic history also the show notes for the show will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash kufa k-u-f-a-h with that we're going to get into the show season three episode one syria and iraq Kufa and the Khawarij. Muawiyah had never faced an enemy like this before. As his armies approached Kufa in Iraq, he received word a new rebellion had sprung from within the city. But these rebels were not devoted to Ali ibn Abi Talib, Muawiyah's former nemesis. They were the Khawarij who opposed both Muawiyah and Ali. Muawiyah expected some resistance when he came to occupy Kufa. The city had been Ali's headquarters for almost four years. Even as his armies closed in on Iraq in the last few months of Ali's life, Muawiyah knew taking the city would not be easy. Everyone expected a long, bloody struggle if Muawiyah invaded Kufa. But then Ali was assassinated by one of the Khawarij. After Ali's death, his son Hassan became the caliph. But Hassan had no desire to continue his father's war with Muawiyah, and he did not trust the Iraqis. Hassan did the wise thing. He secured safe passage for himself and his family, gave up his claim to the caliphate to Muawiyah, and retired to Medina, the city of his birth. Now it was Muawiyah's turn to deal with the madness in Iraq. Muawiyah's capital, Damascus, was free of the scourge of the Khawarij, and he never had to fight them. In fact, much of his success was because of the stability in Syria. Before the Muslims finalized their conquest of Syria in the Battle of Yarmouk, it had long been a Roman province. 
Unlike the new Iraqi cities of Kufa and Basra, the Syrians were comfortable with a central government. Nonetheless, Muawiyah was well aware of the Khawarij mischief in Kufa. The Khawarij were a strange breed. Outwardly, they were pious Muslims dedicated to a life of devotion and worship. But they believed every Muslim who did not agree with them were munafiqun or traitors to the faith. And they believed slaying the munafiqun was a sacred duty. The Khawarij were much more complicated than Ali ibn Abi Talib. Muawiyah and Ali's conflict began with the murder of the third righteous caliph, Uthman ibn Affan. Muawiyah and Uthman were cousins and both belonged to the powerful Umayyah clan of Mecca. Ali assumed the caliphate after Uthman's murder and insisted the Muslim elite give him bay'ah or the Pledge of Allegiance. Most of them reluctantly complied. But some, like Muawiyah, resisted. At the time of Uthman's death, Muawiyah was the governor of Syria. He refused to give Ali the bay'ah until his cousin's murder was avenged. As the months passed and tensions escalated, both sides prepared for war. Muawiyah was furious that many of Uthman's opponents had attained high positions in Ali's administration. And Ali refused to find Uthman's killers until Muawiyah swore allegiance to him. Ali started out with much more territory and men than Muawiyah. But Ali had many things going against him and made several mistakes. His biggest mistake was going to war against Aisha, the prophet's widow, at the Battle of the Camel. Though he defeated Aisha, Ali's reputation and support suffered immensely. After the Battle of the Camel, Ali changed his capital from Medina to Kufa. He clashed with Muawiyah for the first time at the Battle of Safin in Syria. Muawiyah was close to losing when his trusted advisor, Amr ibn al-As, negotiated a ceasefire. In the terms of the ceasefire, Ali and Muawiyah agreed to have two men arbitrate and decide how best to resolve the conflict. Many of Ali's followers opposed this idea. Those that opposed arbitration separated from Ali, declaring both he and Muawiyah were munafiqun, traitors to the faith. They vowed to destroy the corrupt Muslim leadership and establish a new era of righteous Islamic rule. These Khawarij, as they came to be known, put Ali in a difficult spot. He was reluctant to fight against them as they used to be his own soldiers. Yet, they posed an imminent threat, forcing Ali to deal with both an external and an internal enemy. But eventually, their actions grew so bold and outrageous, Ali had no choice but to engage them in battle. Ali fought the Khawarij at the Battle of Nahrawan and nearly wiped them out. He destroyed all but nine of them, but those nine would be enough. The nine survivors escaped the battlefield and hatched a plot to kill Muawiyah, Ali, and Amr ibn al-As at the same time. Muawiyah and Amr ibn al-As escaped the Khawarij plot. But Ali was not so lucky. Ali's death cleared the way for Muawiyah to negotiate directly with his son Hassan ibn Ali. Hassan abdicated and now Muawiyah was moving in to occupy Kufa. But the Khawarij posed a problem for Muawiyah as well. 
Politically and militarily, he had to occupy Kufa. He had to establish his authority over Ali's former stronghold. However, he wanted to avoid as much violence as possible. He did not want to antagonize Ali's city any more than necessary. So, he sent a single cavalry after the Khawadij, hoping that would be enough to vanquish their threat. But like many others, Muawiyah underestimated the Khawadij. He was stunned and disgusted when the Khawadij defeated and nearly wiped out his cavalry. No wonder Ali lost and Hassan capitulated. No leader could be successful with such stubborn people in their midst. Muawiyah was not about to risk any more of his soldiers on this debacle. He had a better idea. He sent a message to the chiefs of Kufa. The Khawarij are from your people, he told them, and your responsibility. Deal with them or I will unleash my armies on Kufa and I make no guarantees for your safety. Without Ali or Hassan to lead them, the Kufans knew they didn't stand a chance against Muawiyah. They begged the Khawadish to lay down their arms and rejoin the city. When that didn't work, the chiefs organized an army and went out to meet the Khawadish on the battlefield. Many of the Khawadish, surprised their own people turned against them, gave up and returned to their homes. Those that remained were destroyed. Mughira ibn Shu'ba Muawiyah would need a skilled hand to govern Kufa. He wanted someone capable like Ahmad ibn As, the governor of Egypt. Since Ahmad wasn't available, he chose the next best thing. Muawiyah tapped Ahmad's son, Abdullah ibn Amr, to be his first governor of Kufa. And Muawiyah would have been satisfied with this had he not been approached by Mughira ibn Shu'ba. Like Muawiyah, Amr, and Ali, Mughira ibn Shu'ba was a Sahaba or companion of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He was from the town of Ta'if, about 40 miles east of Mecca, and had accepted Islam after the Prophet migrated to Medina. Murida was a tall man with one eye. He'd lost the other in the Battle of Yarmouk in Syria during the reign of the second caliph, Omar ibn al-Khattab. Murida ibn Shu'ba remained neutral during the conflict between Ali and Muawiyah. He did not take part in any of the battles and played a neutral role during the arbitration. But now that the hostilities were over, Murida hoped to gain some position with Muawiyah. When he learned that Muawiyah had chosen Amr ibn As's son as governor of Kufa, he saw an opportunity. You've put yourself between the jaws of a lion, he told Muawiyah when the two met in Damascus. Syria is between the father in Egypt and the son in Iraq. Even though Muawiyah trusted Amr, he understood the potential danger and knew the extents men would go to for power. He immediately deposed Amr's son and named Murida as governor instead. When Amr learned of this, he met with Muawiyah and convinced him to at least put a check on Murida. If left alone, he said, Murida would empty Kufa of its entire treasury. In order to appease Amr ibn As and limit Murida's power in Kufa, Muawiyah made Amr's son the finance minister of Kufa. Not surprisingly, Murida sulked at this, but could do nothing. Muawiyah's Government 
The empire was united under Muawiyah's rule, but there was still a lot of division. Though the Arab Muslims were the rulers, they were a minority in most areas. This was most evident in Syria, Muawiyah's stronghold. The province known as Syria was not limited to the republic we know today. The region called Asham, the Arabic word for Syria, included modern-day Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, and even parts of Saudi Arabia. During Muawiyah's reign, however, Syria was divided into four smaller districts, Palestine, Jordan, Damascus, and Homs. Each of these smaller districts had a governor answerable directly to Muawiyah. These sub-governors were responsible for collecting the tax revenue and sending it to Damascus. Outside of Syria, taxation policies were very inconsistent. It was up to the local administration to establish and manage their finances. As such, some provinces did much better than others depending on the governor in office. Wealth did not flow from the outer provinces into Syria to be redistributed at Muawiyah's whim. All of the tax revenues of Syria originated in Syria. Most Syrians at this time were still Christian. It would take generations for the Muslims to become a majority, and even today, there are still large pockets of Christians and Jews living there. Despite the potential conflict of a Muslim minority ruling over a Christian majority, there were very few religious clashes in Syria during Muawiyah's reign. His jizya, or non-Muslim tax, was reported to be modest and stable. Abiding by the injunctions of the Quran, he did not demolish churches or monasteries and did not prevent public Christian worship. And there is evidence that new churches were built during his reign. Some Christian sects that were persecuted by the Romans flourished under Muawiyah. Monophysite and Nestorian Christians were finally able to worship openly and freely. And unlike the Romans, he did not resort to playing one group of Christians against another. Muawiyah even posted Muslim soldiers to guard Christians during their worship services. The primary setback for Christianity during Muawiyah's reign was that they could no longer depend on government support. This was especially difficult for those Christian groups that aligned with the dominant Greek Orthodox Church in Constantinople. These Christians now had to depend more and more on private donations. And even this began to suffer as conversion to Islam increased over the years. Another factor contributing to Syria's success was Muawiyah's preference for diplomacy over force. When he needed to convince tribal leaders to go along with him, Muawiyah would invite them to his palace in Damascus. There he would feed them, entertain them, and shower them with gifts. He flattered them and offered to use his connections to help out with any problems they may have. In this way, Muawiyah won the trust of the Syrian nobility. Some Christian contemporaries described Muawiyah in glowing terms, saying he was the first among equals. He was not ostentatious, did not wear a crown, and built no monuments in his name. Unlike his successors, Muawiyah was essentially a child of the desert. He was born in Mecca and had witnessed the rise of the Arabs over the years. 
Even though his father, Abu Sufyan, had once been a bitter enemy of Prophet Muhammad, Muawiyah saw firsthand the power of Islam. He saw the rise of the religion from its humble beginnings as a persecuted minority in Mecca to the ruling force over millions of people across three continents. He knew much of the strength of Islam lay in those simple desert roots, and that was how he preferred to govern the empire. Simple, straightforward, uncomplicated. As such, his administration was not very sophisticated. The empire was divided into five large provinces. Syria, which included Jordan and Palestine. Egypt, which included North Africa. Basra, which included most of southeastern Persia. Kufa, which included most of Iraq and Central Asia. And the Hejaz, which included the Arabian Peninsula. Each region was further divided into smaller districts. Most of his governors had sub-governors ruling these smaller districts. But these boundaries were not fixed. Administrative regions shifted depending on Muawiyah's preference and the needs of the moment. Sometimes he combined two large regions under one governor. Other times he split a large region between multiple governors. Murida in Kufa Much like the Muslim empire, Kufa was a divided city when Murida ibn Shu'bah became governor. Though the people of Kufa had given their pledge to Muawiyah, their hearts were still with Ali, and Murida knew the threat of the Khawarij was still present. Murida could not expect much assistance from Muawiyah in Syria. Muawiyah generally took a hands-off approach with his officials. Muawiyah expected his governors to handle their own problems. If Damascus had to get involved, that meant Kufa needed a new governor. Mamia was known to replace governors in a heartbeat if they proved ineffective. Furthermore, Murida understood the people of Kufa were not yet comfortable with Muawiyah as their caliph. Things were fine in Syria and Egypt where Muawiyah and Amr ibn As ruled respectively. But in other areas of the empire, there was still a lot of resentment against Muawiyah. The people of Kufa, Basra, and even the Arabian Peninsula weren't exactly happy that he was in charge. They accepted Muawiyah because they were tired of fighting and there was no other viable choice. With these problems in mind, Murida took a conciliatory approach to governing Kufa. He did not pressure the people to verbally acknowledge their loyalty to Muawiyah. Because of this, he was more or less accepted by the people. But Murida was no fool. He forced those with sketchy loyalties to attend all the public prayers. Their willingness to pray behind Murida or his representative demonstrated their submission to him. Murida's precautions would prove valid. In 43 AH, two years after he became governor, a group of Khawadij hatched another rebellion. Their leader was Ibn Alifa, who began by holding meetings with other like-minded individuals. They pledged allegiance to Ibn Alifa and devoted themselves to two things. First, they promised to fight the Munafiqun, the traitors to the faith. By this, they meant Muawiyah and his administration. Second, they promised to kill the people of the Qibla, or in other words, 
average Muslims who did not join them. Morita's spy soon found out about their suspicious gatherings. His police raided one of their meetings and arrested several of the Khawadij. However, the ringleader Ibn Olifa and several others escaped. They learned to be more careful and began secretly meeting at a friend's house in Hira about three and a half miles from Kufa. But they had to move once again as their meetings grew larger and attracted unwanted attention. This time they moved to the house of one of Ibn Olifa's relatives. Talk of a Khawadij rebellion was all over the city, but Morita's spies had lost track of them. Like Muawiyah before him, Morita decided to apply pressure to the Kufins. After the prayers one evening, Morita gave a speech to the chiefs of Kufa. He warned them of the dangers of rebellion and its repercussions. He advised them to look within their clans and families and root out this evil before things got worse. He ended his speech on a threatening tone. You have heard what I said, so let every man among the chiefs satisfy me regarding his people. And if not, then by Allah, I shall surely change from someone you like into someone you hate. The chief of Ibn Olifa's clan was a staunch supporter of Ali. But he was a noble man who honored his pledges and hated the Khawarij. He promised Murida he'd uphold his bay'ah and would kill any Khawarij he found in his clan. When Ibn Olifa heard the chief's declaration, he decided it was time to move again. Even though he ultimately planned to kill any Muslim who didn't side with him, he didn't want to bring harm on his own people. So later that night, Ibn Olifa and his followers moved to a location near modern-day Baghdad. From there, he wrote a letter to the governor of Madain. In the most audacious manner, Ibn Olifa threatened the governor with destruction if he did not join the Khawadish cause. I summon you to the Book of Allah, the letter read, and to the Sunnah of his Prophet and the rule of Abu Bakr and Omar. I also call you to disavow Uthman and Ali for innovation in religion and abandoning the Quran. If you accept, then you are a sensible man, and if you do not, then you run out of excuses and you should prepare for war. Ibn Olifa sent the letter with his youngest follower, a boy not yet 14 years old. The governor scoffed at the letter, but still sent it up the chain to Morita. This was the break Morita was looking for. Now he knew where the Khawarij were located and could focus on bringing them to justice. Shiites and Khawarij with few exceptions, the people of Kufa were either Sharia or Khawarij. Though they shared a common enemy, they couldn't have been further apart. The Sharia and the Khawarij both hated Muawiyah and the other Umayyas. Their hatred was based on both historical and political factors. They both viewed the Umayyas as opportunists who opposed Prophet Muhammad from the very beginning. Though some Umayyas did accept Islam early on, most notably Uthman ibn Affan, the vast majority did not convert until the Prophet conquered Mecca. Mawiyah and his father Abu Sufyan fell into this category. Abu Sufyan led the opposition against Prophet Muhammad. This made Muawiyah's ascendance to the Caliphate even more unthinkable. While most Khawarij and many Sharia accepted the rule of Abu Bakr and Omar as legitimate, they felt things began to go wrong with Uthman ibn Affan. 
They felt Muawiyah perpetuated this injustice by assuming the caliphate when there were many more qualified individuals. But the Khawadij and Sha'iya had more differences than similarities. Their primary difference revolved around who should be the caliph. For the Sha'iya, they believed the caliphate was hereditary. It should pass along to someone from Prophet Muhammad's lineage or, at the very least, someone from his clan, Banu Hashim. But the Khawadij did not consider heredity an important factor. Like most Muslims, they believed leadership should be based on merit and ability. Another striking difference was their identity. The Khawadij, then and now, were not really a sect. Some leaned more towards the Sunni, others more towards the Sharia. The Khawadij represented an ideology. The ideology they represented was that Islam had been corrupted and it was the government's fault. The only way to fix this corruption was the removal of the government and a return to the pure practice of Islam. This ideology is echoed in many Muslim terrorist groups today. The Sharia, however, are a sect of Islam. What started off as a political dispute between Ali and Muawiyah has morphed into a theological split. While Sunnis and Sharia share many of the same religious rituals and concepts, there are many theological differences. Primary among them is the status of Ali ibn Abi Talib. For the Sharia, Ali was the true successor to Prophet Muhammad and held a higher rank than the rest of humanity. For the Sunni, Ali was a highly respected companion of Prophet Muhammad. No more and no less. As far as location is concerned, most Shia are concentrated in the former strongholds of Ali, namely Iraq and Persia. This is why today the three largest Shia majority nations, Iran, Iraq, and Azerbaijan, are all in this area. As an ideology, the Khawadij are not limited to any specific geographical region, but they do follow a general pattern of development. People with Khawadij tendencies will make hijrah, or migration, to an area dominated by like-minded folk. There, they prepare for jihad against the Muslim establishment. As a result, most of the victims of Khawadij violence were other Muslims. This is another pattern found in modern terrorist groups. Lower Mesopotamia the geography around Kufa presented both an opportunity and obstacle in Morida's pursuit of the Khawarij. This was the eastern edge of one of the most ancient cultures on earth. This region, bounded by the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, was crisscrossed with canals providing life-giving irrigation and cultivating a rich culture and history. This fertile region formed a crude triangle with Madain to the north and the Persian Gulf to the south and sandwiched between the hostile Arabian deserts to the west and the formidable Zagros Mountains to the east. The fertility of the region led to a high population in several major ancient cities. These included Assur, Babylon, Nineveh, Nippur, and Uruk. Before the Muslim conquests, this fertile region, known today as Lower Mesopotamia, was the breadbasket for the former Sasanian Empire. It was the home of their capital, Tesiphon, known to the Arabs as Madain. 
Tesifan, or Medain, had once been a key city along the famous Silk Road. The Silk Road was a network of trade routes connecting the silk-producing cities of China with the Middle East, Africa, and Europe. But with the Muslim conquests, political and economic power shifted west away from Persia, first to Medina and then to Damascus. And though neither Kufa nor Basra were on the Silk Road, both cities were strategically important to the Muslim Empire. Kufa, sitting on the western banks of the Tigris River, was a gateway between Arabia and Persia, and Basra gave the Muslims easy access to the Persian Gulf. Long before the Muslims came, the Persians recognized the bounties of this region and called it Boho Dadeti, or Gift of God. The Abbasids, who would succeed the Umayyads, would build their capital less than 20 miles from the ruins of Tesiphon and called it Madinatu Salam, or the City of Peace. However, the ancient name would stick, and by the time of the Crusades, Borodadeti had been Arabized to Baghdad. Makil and the Khawarij Morida knew the area around Medain well and appointed a local chieftain named Ma'akil ibn Qais to find the Khawarij. Since becoming governor of Kufa, Morida had learned much about the politics of the city. He knew Ali's supporters, the Shi'a to Ali, despised Muawiyah. But he knew they hated the Khawarij even more. He instructed Ma'akil to include only the Shi'a to Ali in his band they would be more determined to destroy the Khawarij. Ma'akil began his expedition with 3,000 men. But by the time they set off, Ibn Alifa and the Khawarij had moved yet again. Ma'akil instinctively guessed his opponent's next move. He had a feeling the Khawarij would move towards the coast. He dispatched a speedy cavalry of 300 men towards the Persian Gulf. Sure enough, they caught up with Ibn Alifa and the Khawarij just outside of Basra. Ma'akil did not have any illusions his cavalry would defeat the Khawarij. He simply hoped the cavalry would pin them down long enough for the bulk of his forces to arrive. The next day, Ma'akil received word his cavalry had engaged the Khawarij and were locked in a stalemate. Ma'akil then chose 700 of his fastest horsemen and led them on a high-speed chase to the coast. They reached Basra by sunset that day. With nearly 1,000 men, Ma'akil got overconfident and, like many others, underestimated the Khawarij. He would learn a hard lesson about the people he was up against. The Khawarij, undeterred by the fact they were outnumbered 3 to 1, launched a surprise attack against Ma'akil. His men were scattered and it was all he could do to rally them and regain some semblance of order. Ma'akil ordered his men to dismount and withdraw their weapons. He got them organized in ranks and then began several hours of hard fighting. Eventually, Ma'akil's greater numbers bore fruit and by nightfall, the Khawarij had been pushed back to a row of houses in a nearby village. By this time, the rest of Ma'akil's forces had arrived on the scene. However, the Khawarij were hiding in the village and it was too dark to go searching for them. So Ma'akil decided to rest his men for the night and resume the battle in the morning. Though his men slept, Ma'akil could not. He kept worrying about another surprise attack from the Khawarij. But when morning dawned, he was surprised to find the Khawarij had slipped away. Frustrated he'd lost them yet again, Ma'akil prepared his men for the pursuit. 
he sent his cavalry ahead once again, only this time he doubled the number of soldiers. Meanwhile, an army from nearby Basra had come to assist in the effort. But when they learned the Khawarij had left the area, they chose to remain behind. Basra had enough on his plate with a rebellion in the mountains of northern Khurasan. The Khawarij were Kufa's problem. Makil would have to deal with them on his own. A Dangerous Gamble Ibn Alifa led his Khawarij soldiers back towards Kufa. To his surprise, Makil's cavalry had caught up with them again. They clashed near a village called Jarjaraya, just northeast of Kufa. Once again, Ibn Alifa's men proved to be true warriors and routed the Kufan cavalry. And once again, the Kufan cavalry proved their resilience and rallied to force the Khawarij to retreat across a bridge spanning the Tigris River. Ibn Alifa was running out of options. The Kufan cavalry had crossed the Tigris and would soon catch up to him. He was tired of playing cat and mouse. Ibn Alifa wasn't afraid of meeting his lord, but he wanted to do so in splendid glory. Ibn Alifa noticed the Kufan cavalry was twice as large as before, and that would make Ma'akil and the rest of his forces that much more vulnerable. If he could separate the cavalry from Ma'akil's primary force, he might be able to strike a punishing blow. Ibn Alifa led his men in a frantic charge 20 miles downriver. They found another bridge, crossed back over the Tigris, and cut the ropes. Ibn Alifa and his men rode off just as the Kufan cavalry approached the opposite side of the river. After questioning a couple of local youth, Ibn Alifa learned that Ma'akil and his forces were less than 12 miles away. The old man would have no idea that his cavalry was stranded across the river. Ibn Alifa's plan almost worked. The Khawadij did catch Ma'akil by surprise. They scattered his horses, forcing the Kufans to fight on the ground, giving the mounted Khawadij a significant advantage. But Ibn Alifa did not expect Ma'akil to put up such a stubborn resistance. The old man unsheathed his sword, rallied his men into ranks, and fought off wave after wave of Khawadij attacks. The Khawadij also underestimated how long it would take for Ma'akil's cavalry to cross the river. Their captain hired a couple of local villagers to repair the bridge, and before long, they joined Ma'akil in the fight. Ibn Alifa's gamble proved costly. The Khawadij were already outnumbered, and this time, there was nowhere to run. Caught between Ma'akil to their front and the cavalry to their backs, the Khawadij were slaughtered. Only six of them survived. Mawiyah's Next Move Mawiyah had nothing to do with this battle between the Kufans and the Khawarij. He was hundreds of miles away in Damascus during the entire affair. However, he did get a report on what happened and the trouble Marida ibn Shu'ba had in putting down this rebellion. Mawiyah was fortunate to have such a competent man governing Kufa. Unfortunately, things were not going so well in Basra. This time it wasn't the Khawarij who were causing the trouble. Rather, it was Afghan tribesmen in the mountainous regions of northern Khurasan who rose up in rebellion. The Muslims were learning, as many others would throughout the centuries, that conquering the Afghans was not easy. Mawiyah's cousin, Abdullah ibn Amir, was currently the governor of Basra. But it was clear that he was not up to the task. In addition to the rebellion in Afghanistan, Mawiyah also received reports of lawlessness, banditry, and chaos in Basra. 
unlike the previous caliphs, Mawia was running out of high-ranking sahabas to appoint as governors. The older companions were either dead or close to it. His closest friend and advisor, Amr ibn As, had died just a few weeks after the start of the Khawadj rebellion in Kufa. Another sahaba, Muhammad ibn Maslama, who was one of the first people in Medina to accept Islam, had died earlier that year. Most of the younger companions had either joined with Ali against Muawiyah or remained neutral and wanted nothing to do with him. Muawiyah realized that Iraq was different. He couldn't deal with the Iraqis the same way he dealt with the Syrians. He couldn't buy them off with gifts or win their loyalty with flattery and promises. His cousin Othman had similar troubles in the two Iraqi cities of Kufa and Basra. They complained incessantly about their governors, but no matter who Uthman put in charge, they were never satisfied. It was no surprise most of those involved in his murder came from Kufa. Muawiyah would have to take a stronger approach with Iraq. The Iraqis had to be physically cowed and spiritually crushed. Fear was not enough for them. He needed someone whose very name would strike terror in their hearts. And he knew just the man for the job. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that interesting, engaging, uh, and, and, and educational. I think I went through this in the first part of the show. Now, not going to really talk too much about what just happened. We'll have time to analyze that in later episodes. For right now, I really want to just uh, give you some background information on this on this season. One of the first things I want to tell you about are my resources. Where am I getting all this information from that I'm sharing with you? Well, I use three primary resources for myself. These are my primary resources. There are lots of minor resources that I use, but these are the major ones. They are in no order of preference or anything. The Cambridge Encyclopedia of Islam. Cambridge Encyclopedia of Islam is a humongous tome. I found it very, very useful. I will almost certainly be using it throughout the rest of this podcast and probably in many other aspects as well. Also, number two is Tariq Atabari, that is the history of Atabari. Atabari was a famous Muslim historian and scholar during the Abbasid dynasty. This was uh, his probably the first major uh, Islamic history effort by a Muslim. And his is pretty much the first one. And we'll get into some of the problems and benefits of that in just a moment. And my final primary resource, major resource, is the book, or as a series of books really called The History of Islam. I mostly used volume two for this one. Uh, for this period of time, it covers the Umayyad dynasty. So I mostly use volume two. It is by Dado Salam Publishers. It's a three book volume. I have all three, but I'm mostly using volume two for this part of the, uh, of the podcast series. Now, got to tell you, there are some drawbacks to my resources. No part of history is perfect. There's no perfect resource. Uh, I wish I could, you know, go back in time and record things as they happen. Unfortunately, I have to go with these books written by other people who got their information from other people who probably got their information from other people. So it's not perfect. And that is one of the major problems with Islamic history. There is a, a real lack of firsthand information. Tariq Atabari, which is one of my primary resources that I use. Tariq Atabari is 
Um, it, it is not the best resource. Well, it is the best resource we have, but there's a lot about it that could be better. The Well, as far as Cambridge Encyclopedia of Islam, my first resource, that's a, a, a secular effort, mostly written by university scholars and professors and stuff like that. So there's some of them are Muslim, some of them are not. That's regardless, but it's a very good resource. And the um, primary Muslim resource I use is Tariq Atabari. And the main problem with Tariq Atabari is that Atabari lived several hundred years after the events he wrote about. He got many of his, his many of his um, information. He does give the Isnad, the chain of narration in his reports, which is a good thing. However, much of much of his information come from comes from Shiite sources, which is not necessarily bad. But when it comes to Ali and the Umayyads, sometimes the Shiites can be a little biased. So we got to take that into consideration. Second thing is also that um, Atabadi he lived in, during the Abbasid dynasty, and the Abbasids overthrew the Umayyads, and so. A lot of the information that is in Atabadi, you have to wonder, was he writing this in order to not upset the Abbasids? Or because he was living during the period of Abbasid time and they saw themselves as being reformers over the Umayyads, the, Abbas the Abbasids, is, was he writing it because of that? Because he was trying to, either because all the information he had was negative or because he was concerned about government pressure, so he had to make it negative. We don't really know, but there is a big possibility of there being bias. And the problem is that there is very little alternative information besides a tabari. That is information written around the same time. There's lots of speculation that came after that, of course, but there's nothing that comes before him that we can really use. And there's not much during the same time that we can really use that contradicts it. So Tabari is the best we got as far as um, Islamic history from Muslim is concerned. And we have for now, at least until more information is discovered, we're going to have to live with the benefits and drawbacks of having such little information. Alhamdulillah, I am confident, however, that Overall, it is true. Maybe some of, some of the particulars might be exaggerated, but I do believe that overall Atabadi information is true. Moving on, um, we will, inshallah, continue the practice that we had before, that we started just late last season of highlighting other Muslim podcasts. So at the end of this uh, episode, which is coming up in a few minutes, I will have a couple of minutes of another Muslim podcast. This one is called Mad Mamluks. They have a podcast that seems to be doing pretty well, alhamdulillah. Uh, I don't know the people who run it, but it seems like a very good show, and I'll play a couple of minutes for you at the end of the show, inshallah. Last thing, last couple of things before we wrap up, I would most certainly appreciate it if you would show us some love by making a pledge on Patreon. Uh, that's once again, this show is pretty much listener supported. If you can support the show by making a pledge on patreon.com slash Islamic history, that is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Islamic history, that would be most wonderful. Show notes for this episode will be available at IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash Kufa, K-U-F-A-H. Kufa. If you go there, you will find many things, including the script for this episode, a link to the Mad Mamluks podcast, a link to Patreon in case you want to go ahead and do that pledge, some of my social media connections, as well as um, 
I may have something else there. Oh, yeah, as well as um, other episodes that are related to this episode. So you'll see links to those. So there'll be lots of stuff there that you may find useful, inshallah. Until then, brothers and sisters, I'm going to have to wrap this up and close this out, inshallah, until next week. I hope that you enjoy this first episode. And if you have, then inshallah, there are many, many more to come. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Stay tuned for a couple of minutes of the Mad Mamluks podcast. All right. Some of the uh, crazy things that we witnessed and without a doubt are factually happening, not conspiracy theory or anything like that, but um, I've witnessed it, seeing it. People's phones getting scrambled while you're there. So it'll show uh, a virus has been injected or something into your phone. You can't make incoming outgoing calls. What does that mean? Is That's why live feeds weren't going in and out. Whoa. So that's why you can't even send out what was happening there at the time. Um, there's mercenaries that are literally hired like privacy, almost like Blackwater. So this, I don't know if it's conspiracy theory or not. Somebody said they confirmed it. That was an actual Blackwater employee or um, a But when I when we were doing one of the interviews with uh, actually the son of Dave Archambault, who's who's a tribal leader at um, of the tribal council of Standing Rock, while we're on the river, while we're talking with the family, right? Literally down down the river in a canoe. I have the picture I'll show you, dude. Down the canoe, two mercenaries like trying to creep, just looking at us down down the. (laughs) I mean, it's it's funny, and we're just looking at, we're just waving like, what the freak is this? And so I'm thinking like, there's people like part of the camp or something, and the the um the people with her like, she's like, uh, I think her name's Sophia. She's like. I'm from here. I, I know everybody up and down this river. That ain't know we know. Like we, that's Dapple. They they're up and down here all the time. Dapple security, Dapple wow. mercenaries that they hire. People on sniper rifles. People literally on sniper rifles. Uh, no exaggeration. On on high hilltops, people, we have to use uh, drones left and right that they're shooting down, confiscating illegally. Uh, so it's it's a confiscation of of you know journalism of what's happening. Uh, so you you don't get the full picture basically. So. First hand experience is the best. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mom Luke's. I'm Mahi and I'm here with my co hosts, Sim and Mort. It's been a minute since we've been talking to y'all, but we've had a roundtable discussion.